This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman, and this is the London FinTech Podcast, episode 233, brought to you in association with Smart and enlistedboard.com, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Gerald Chappell, founder and CEO of Abound, a credit rating fintech. Now, fintechs doing credit ratings is a topic we've covered before. However, however, before you all switch off, today we're diving into a fresh way of doing it. Good Lord. And one that, amazingly, Gerald tells me is pretty much uncovered in the marketplace, which is extraordinary, namely using open banking data for credit scoring. And by way of context, Gerald happened to be, in his previous incarnation, the global head of digital lending at McKinsey, so he should know a thing or two about this topic. Furthermore, despite Abound only being formed in 2020, last year they raised an eye-opening half a billion quid in funding, so there must be quite a few people out there who are also impressed by Abound. As to the topic, let's all hear together, as, as always, I know very little. However, as a noddy level entry point, i.e. my thoughts off the top of my head, if you were to see, say, my last 10 years of banking data and find out that every other week I went into some massive unauthorised overdraft, you might conclude from that that maybe I'm not so good with money after all and a quid's poor credit, or vice versa. Anyway, wearing my risk hat, I'm always interested in what signal can be extracted from all the noise in any data stream. And then beyond that, there's the how hard can it actually be to do what conceptually ended up sounding fairly straightforward. Given how rare this is, and I was truly surprised to stumble upon something so seemingly obvious qua methodology that hasn't been mined to death after a decade plus of fintech, I suspect the answer, as always, to how hard can it be is harder than you think. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good morning, Gerald. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Good morning, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. So... With my usual um, seriousness, or maybe that should be flippancy, <laughs> in terms of finding a new topic to kick off the episode, I suggested randomly mangoes. And then you told me that in a prior incarnation, you'd had a, a client who was well into mangoes and was, was, was telling you the virtues of Pakistani mangoes compared to Indian mangoes and all that. But I don't think I'd be able to hold my end up in that uh, conversation other than all fruit. Um, that comes from Asia tastes so much better in Asia. I mean, I don't like bananas over here, for example, but you go to Thailand and those little bananas are really quite nice. But rather than a, a topic I know little and you had a conversation about once, you suggested the, the topic of growing up being an itinerant uh, and moving around this uh, globe of ours. Yeah, I, I, uh, I moved around a lot growing up. So I was born in New Zealand, uh, but I lived there the grand total of seven months. So, so don't obviously have a, a great uh, or like a deep memory of, of that. From there, we moved to the Northern Territory in Australia. Then we moved up to, to Singapore, then back to Australia, then up to Malaysia and KL, where I did most of my uh, sort of uh, high school education. Uh, then to Singapore briefly again, where I did some exams. And then I finished high school in Jakarta in Indonesia, which was around about the time of the Asian financial crisis. So back in sort of 1998-99, which was also when the Suharto regime fell. Uh, and so that was quite an interesting time to be in Indonesia. I then left there and came to London when I started university. Uh, so my, my kind of, my father's British initially, uh, you know, and sort of always sort of uh, felt that I should come to, to the UK for, for life and, and education. And so, yeah, I started university at the LSE in London. I guess that would have been uh, around about 1999. And then I've lived, uh, lived and worked out of London ever, ever since. Ah, oh, we're talking about uh, the weather and how rubbish it had been. And, and today we've got the second... Uh sunny day of the summer for the whole of July and um, August at this rate. But um, you, having lived in all these different places, have experienced many different climates. And as we've touched on the podcast before, it's amazing how you can get people from all parts of the world and they actually don't like the weather there either. I mean, Singapore is a tad warm and humid uh, most of the year and, and not very seasonal in that. I mean, in terms of uh, preferred climate, if you were making a band's headquarters in the place that you've experienced the, the nicest climate, where would that be? I mean, I think Singapore would be pretty hard to beat from that perspective. It's, uh, you know, 30 to 32 degrees all year round. You know, sometimes it rains a little bit more, sometimes a little bit less, but it's a pretty reliable climate. I was actually there uh, two weeks ago. So we had our July board meeting in Singapore. 
we have a, a kind of mix of European and Asian investors. Uh, and so we do one board meeting a year over in, uh, over in Singapore. So I, I quite like it as a, as, as a place. Yes, I mean, first I went there was in the 80s, and there were still parts of Singapore that were a bit rubbish and characterful, whereas now it's all very, very, very 21st century. But um, yes, it, generally it's a bit, been a bit like Switzerland. Funnily enough, I'm probably the only person in the world that connects Switzerland and Singapore other than that they start with S. And they're both clean and efficient, and I could never quite see what was wrong with being clean and efficient and everything works, actually, but it was never fashionable to say that. But it does have a different aspect of itinerancy. One thing that I've seen is that a number of people, and I've forgotten who now, but a few years ago, I had a guest who lived in 14 countries. His parents had been diplomats. He was ethnically Indian, but he'd never actually lived in India, for example. I think he was born in Japan and anyway, lived all around the world. So there's a complex question of uh, identity attached to that. But I was wondering whether this sort of moving around thing, although you haven't moved for a while, especially as a young child, programs you to kind of being a bit of a rolling stone, but clearly after 20 years in, in, in London, you, you, you got over that. And in particular, we were thinking about this recently because a couple of the catamaran channels that we watched and started watching during uh, lockdowns, it seemed very good sort of escapist porn, just buy a boat and go all over the world where the states can't touch you very much at all. Bit of a problem when you come into port because <laughs> they have to let you in. And in cases like Mexico, it has taken people three days, literally, just to, just to turn up and, and, and go through customs. But anyway, a couple of the families that we watch I've got toddlers, I mean, a couple under three or, you know, two under fives. And we're rather thinking that uh, these children, for better and for worse, will be conditioned, perhaps, for the rest of their lives, somehow to keep moving and getting itchy feet and, and, and thinking, oh, well, this is nice, but let's, let's move on. I mean, presumably you've, you've found a way of conquering that or you never actually had that vibe. I mean, I travelled a lot with work, so I was based in London, but uh, prior to, to setting up a bound, I uh, used to be a partner at McKinsey uh, and before that in other management consulting as well. So you, you spend a lot of time traveling. Uh, when I was at McKinsey, I practically lived on, a, on an airplane. So I had a global role. I was spending sort of a week in, in Asia, you know, every other week in Asia and the other week in, uh, in Europe. So you, you kind of satisfy some of that wanderlust a little bit through, uh, through, through that. But I think, you know, if I had to look at what, are you, what did you know, that kind of upbringing give me in terms of uh, like uh, character, character flaws or traits, I think some of it is a, a lot of curiosity. So you're always interested in new things, exploring interesting ideas and so on. I think that's probably why I ended up staying in consulting for so long, because you're always getting involved in what is the new, the, the, the new topic, the new issue, the, the, the new problem. Uh, and that's a little bit, I think, also why I got into, into founding you know, a bound and setting that up. Just a lot of curiosity and, and, and kind of recognizing that the current credit scoring system is actually quite broken uh, and could be done significantly better if you attacked it in a, in a, different, uh, a different way. So, so maybe that, that, that itinerancy leads to a kind of deep curiosity, which then leads to you trying and wanting to do lots of different things. Ah, oh, in, interesting. Yes, it's a kind of novophilia. It's a, it's a love of the, the new, which I've always kind of had, but I had a sort of geographical stasis, although vice versa, after far too many decades in this darn country and it's rubbish weather and it's rubbish politics. Um, I've definitely got the wanderlust about wandering off to some of the nice places that uh, you've been, but not many people, not many places actually have open borders. And Bridget and I can't really turn up anywhere, knock on the door and say, oh, we're going to live here or anything like that. So uh, the, the choices are actually uh, limited um, vice versa. Now, uh, you mentioned the, the career journey, so maybe you'd just like to to, to tell us how you ended up at McKinsey, which you mentioned, and then um, what possessed you, and uh, I don't know your domestic arrangements, but whether you had to uh, sell the case to a partner, which is uh, the case that, look, I know I'm earning sort of gazillions of bucks every year at McKinsey, and you know, you, you're buying a new Porsche every week, but uh, how about I go and do a startup? Because <laughs> this seems far more rational or, or slash fun. But anyway, you, you started at university, and, and then what happened next? How come you ended up in consultancy? Uh, so I started at the university. My first job uh, was in energy trading, but I got fired from that before I even started. Uh, so um, uh, when I was leaving uh, university was the time of uh, when, when you had the kind of the collapse of Enron and the, uh, the, the fallout from that. So the, the bank that I was going to work for basically shut down their energy trading desk. Uh, and while I was uh, on holiday, um, uh, having done all my exams and getting ready to start, uh, I got a phone call saying, oh, by the way, you're not starting anymore. So that was a bit of a shock. And then so uh, went from there into strategy consulting. So I started for a small strategy consulting firm, but always with a, a very strong bent on analytics. So that the, the firm that I worked for had a real focus on economic, uh, basically econometric modeling. So the economics and the macro environment dictate the business strategy. 
And so we, it was a, a very kind of analytical start. So basically taking my economics degree and, and, and doing a lot of work from an econometric modeling perspective. And from there, uh, transitioned into kind of into financial modeling and risk. So spent a lot of time as a consultant working with uh, large banks globally on uh, building their, their risk models. So uh, running up to the first financial crisis, there was obviously a lot of stuff around there in terms of risk transfer and securitization and structured product packaging. Uh, and then beyond that into capital, capital optimization, pricing, uh, you know, and just general decisioning risk analytics. Uh, if you look at my background, I probably worked with almost all of the big UK banks, many across Europe, many, many in Asia as well, on their, their decisioning models and their credit models uh, across both retail and, and uh, corporate and commercial lending. And I guess from there sort of really built this, um, uh, this recognition that traditional consumer credit modeling was actually fundamentally broken. Um, it was based on an entrenched sort of credit scoring system that really hadn't evolved much since the 1980s. Uh, that was really just looking at for, for customers, well, what is the historic credit they've been approved for in the past? Can we apply some basic logistic regression to that and use that to predict credit outcomes in the future? And it kind of works. It sort of you know, gives you, a, a, you know, something that may be right on average, but in reality is wrong in every individual case and is, is quite simple. It doesn't know how much the, you know, a, 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 a customer earns, what the, you know, how much they spend, what their affordability situation looks like. And so it's really, really quite limited. And so I guess the, the last couple of years I was in consulting, I sort of was possessed of this idea that actually you could do this a hell of a lot better if you could just take customers' bank transaction data uh, and really understand their financial situation and use that as the, the, the basis for doing you know, consumer lending decisions. And it was very frustrating, um, just the, the pace at which the banking industry moves. I felt like it would be uh, an uphill struggle to work with clients to, to get that in place over a five, 10 year horizon. And it would actually be much better to just go out and, and do, it to do it myself. Uh, and so with a, with a partner, um, a, a colleague of mine for a long time, Michelle, we set up a bound in, in, in 2020. To your question, like, was this a, a hard sell on the, on the, on the domestic front? It was, it was a little bit. <laughs> I know you've been shopping at Harvey Nichols, but we're now going to be eating grass for a couple of years, but we will make a profit after that, don't worry. Yeah, it sort of went from, it, it, maybe not as extreme as, as you portray. So I wasn't buying a Porsche every, every, every week, but I was very comfortably you know, compensated and going from that to basically earning nothing, well, literally earning uh, nothing. Uh, and then at some point we, we did start paying ourselves salaries, but you know, at a, at a small fraction of the of the of, of, of what I previously earned. So, uh, yeah, I had to I had to convince uh, Susanna, my wife, that um, uh, this was actually a, a sensible uh, a sensible thing to do. And she was quite skeptical. I think she might still be a little skeptical. But we kind of said, well, you know, if 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 I don't do it, um, it's something that I'd wanted to do and had an itch to do for quite some time. Then I always sort of think back and say, well, what, what, you know, what if what if I'd given that a given that a shot? And given what we've achieved so far, so we've been running for you know, three years, I guess we started in, you know, kind of around about mid 2020. Um, I'm pretty pleased with the with the results so far. And I think Susanna's maybe coming around to it as well. Ah, oh, excellent. Well, having fairly aged parents and having had sort of a number of health issues um, with them and a number of issues with the health system uh, in recent months, it brings home to one that life seems when you're relatively young to go on forever, but it doesn't really. And, and if you don't do things when you're alive, it's a bit too late afterwards actually and uh, I too have always found that it's not so much a question of regretting what one has done when well, everybody does stupid things you think oh shit I shouldn't have done that sometimes it's sort of decades of hindsight or something like that but actually the the things that uh, when you're sitting in your rocking chair on your porch that you kind of regret is all the things that you wanted to do and, and didn't you know <laughs> thinking back to it when I was a, a relatively shy boy from a boys school that didn't know one end of a girl from a Another, I think, like, oh, God, I should have chatted her up. <laughs> it's the shots on goal you never even bothered at, rather than the ones that you sort of hit the crossbar or, or you missed. So um, bully for you in terms of diving in and giving it a go. And before we dive into the main course, or maybe this is actually quite an interesting preamble to the main course. As you know, and I think that uh, Lord King and John Kay wrote a, a book on this, in terms of what risk is, there was this debate in the, whatever it was, 20s, 30s, between Keynes on one side and people who thought you could put numbers together and then the numbers will tell you something, which is clearly what you're very good at. And then the other side, and it's a kind of left brain, right brain thing, this in, the, in McGill-Christian terms. Uh, on the other side, the future's unknown. I mean, 
you know, a prime example of this have been the sort of the whole lockdowns and the impact of that on credit ratings and, and everything. It just totally comes out of the blue. Or, or when the EQ or what are the EMU or all these sort of silly currency systems before the current silly currency system that the Europeans had suddenly broke. Uh, you know, you've then got a, a, an utter discontinuity. Or like I was the other day, I got a podcast injury. I was walk, walking to a podcast and I, and I managed to trip off a tiny curb and I sprained my ankle, which uh, quite badly actually. Uh, which has confined me to home for several weeks, which again is an you know, unforeseen discontinuity or extremely remote thing. It's happened twice in my life. So, you know, some things of such low frequency you, you can't really do. So there is this view which I'd summarise, which is in extremis, there's a spectrum or two modes of thinking, which is, that, oh, yes, we're very clever. We can add up numbers and multiply them and divide them sometimes in our spreadsheet and it'll give a number out and that's the right answer. It's the value at risk or whatever, it's the credit risk. And then the other ones, the other, the other end of the extreme, which says, well, you never know about the future, really. So how do you see that sort of uh, debate actually a century ago now, thinking about it? I mean, I, I think the thing that you know is there will be shocks to the system. Um, and those shocks are always different uh, and hence, you know, almost impossible to predict. So I think rather than trying to work out what the, the shock is going to be, you kind of say, OK, if a shock does happen, um, you know, what are the potential consequences of that? So I don't know it's going to be COVID. I don't know it's going to be something else. But I do know if I have a shutdown in market liquidity, if I have people, you know, um, uh, with higher financing costs, I have inflation, et cetera, et cetera, what could the, what the, could the impact be? And so the way I look at that is you can model uh, uh, and calculate for the expected. So coming back to your, your spreadsheet example, um, you can work out on, you know, on average what's going to happen. Uh, if people with a certain kind of risk characteristic have uh, credit exposure, how likely is it they aren't, you know, that they're going to default? That's relatively predictable and modelable. And then I think you have to look at shock and stress testing and scenarios to say, okay, and then for the black swan events, the, the, the kind of the big, uh, you know, disruptions, um, how would I perform in something like that? Even if I don't know what the trigger of the event is, you know, is my, is my business, is my, uh, are my finances resilient uh, to, a big, uh, to a big shock? Yes, I mean, I agree. And my answer is to that question, which I've thought about for a few decades, is a simple one, which is, look, this is what's happened in the past. This is the data we've got. From this, a mathematical calculation says that. A lot of the time, this is going to be really useful, and some of the times it won't be. Um, and then, the, you know, the other point, which is, which is very relevant to making decisions, you mentioned stress tests. I can't hear that without wincing. Uh, after the Federal Reserve managed to get all its banks through the thing by not modelling a significant rate increase in interest rates when they were next to zero and it was bound to happen. So there is that. But putting sort of rubbish stress tests to one side, there's the unknown unknowns, which always catch one out. And then there's also the thing, which is that a bit like in life, businesses would not continue if they looked at the extreme downsides. Every business can be, be blown up. Every person's life can be can be blown up. And so, you know, what I found when I was literally inventing the idea of stress testing in the, in the, in the 90s, because these phrases didn't really exist, was you'd show the board the stress test and they go, oh shit, right, we'd all be bust, right, oh, okay. And then you know, everyone will look at their shoes and, and mumble a little bit and then decide, oh well, you've got to carry on regardless because in extremists, I mean, Bankers Trust is a good example. Bankers Trust blew up because serial correlation went to something they'd never imagined and they were very mathematical at the time. So, Yes, there is this sort of dichotomy, which is even if you do, as you say, which is the correct thing to do. From a management perspective, if you spend too much time looking into the pit of doom, I mean, just, just take it on a life level, you know, if listeners think, what's the worst thing that could happen for the rest of this year to me? <laughs> you end up dead. <laughs> oh, I, I could walk out of my office today and get hit by a bus, right? But if, but if, if, you, if you run your life on that basis, then you're never going to leave the office. Exactly. So, so it's the same. it is the same, I think, in credit and in risk, which is that even if there were no unknown unknowns, even if the modelling of everything was fantastic, if you present, and then the extreme downside is this, people are only going to have to look at their shoes and go, oh, well, we're going to carry on and keep our fingers crossed at, at the end, end, end of the day. It's a bit like the Roman emperors who had that chap following them saying, remember, you're mortal. And, and I mention that simply because we're about to dive into numbers. And I think the important thing for listeners who haven't had exposure to this area is that, look, yes, get the best numbers you can. Yes, get the best modelling and, and people like are bound to give you it. But at the end of the day, it's a number, you know, and a lot of the time that's going to be really useful. And you don't know, you don't know tomorrow sometime. But on the other hand, even if you did, a lot of the time you couldn't, couldn't do anything. One very quick thing. I think there's the model and there's the data. And you can always make the model incrementally better. You can move from a kind of logistic regression approach to a machine learning approach. There's lots of things that you can do. But 
if you don't put new data into the model, you're not necessarily going to get any really any better outcome. You're going to get a marginally better, marginally you know uh, trained, better trained outcome. But the data is the thing that really drives the power of that. And if you come back to you know our, you know our business, why is it that our approach to credit scoring is fundamentally better? Well, it's because it's using data that's so much more relevant and better. It's looking at the data that reflects someone's actual financial life, all of the bank transactions that they have, rather than a very summarized view of data. You know what credit facilities has someone been approved for in the past? Yes, and that also leads on to a different aspect about the real politic of this, which is that in practice, uh, you also have another dimension. Uh, which not all banks do perfectly well, shall we say, um, which is the uh, speed of response to changing signals and changing data, which is that. It's like the same old thing about, you know, if you're being chased by a tiger, it's not a question of whether you can outrun the tiger, it's a question of whether you can outrun your mates who you're with. Uh, and the same thing um, in banking. And coming back to the use of technology such as yours, um, and I always see it as multiple dials on an aircraft, if you're flying the aircraft and something's going a bit wobbly, then some organisations are quite slow to change course, shall we say, uh, and others aren't. So there's definitely a competitive advantage there in terms of, as a client, let's say for the sake of argument, I I sign up and I take your data uh, and the bloke next door does the same thing, but I'm just slower to respond to the you know, increasingly red flags that are coming through, and he's faster. He will he will outperform. So there's also on the client side as well. Okay, so let's let's go back from the, so let's go from the philosophical thing down to the practical. So let's just dive into the sort of simple question then, which is when we were speaking before, I was saying that it always gets hard to find a topic. But in your case, you completely surprised me by saying, amazingly, nobody's really done this. So why is that? Is it is it hard after all, or something? Keeping it simple. I mean, I think the thing about a radical idea is normally they're just just common sense. Uh, and the, the thing is, the rest of the market hasn't hasn't caught up to it. In the case of what we're doing, uh, it is actually quite complex. And, and I think if I look at it, there's probably four reasons uh, that, you know, banks haven't really uh, banks and a lot of the traditional lenders haven't switched to doing open banking or bank transaction data based underwriting. I think number one is it's a lot more complex than it sounds. And, and we can, if you want, we can really go deep on that and go through all the steps that you, you need to do in order to be able to extract signal from the noise of bank transaction data. I think, secondly, the banks have a lot of institutional inertia, which makes it very difficult for them to, to, to move quickly, particularly where they're looking at fundamentally changing a, a core product. You've got to get on board the business. You've got to get on board the risk guys. You've got to get on board compliance. You've got to get on board all the IT and technology guys. You've got to get on board analytics. And actually, there's a lot of people that you have to say, okay, we're prioritizing, we're moving ahead with this now, and we're going to make a significant investment. And it's even more complicated for the big banks because they have this huge technical debt overhang from their legacy IT systems, which makes it very, very costly. I think number three, I would also say that across the industry, there's probably quite a a lack of vision that things can be done differently. And in a way, you have to show people that things work differently before they start to switch and and, and change the way that that they've always done things or, you know, certainly been locked into doing things for for many decades. And for example, when we started this, when we were initially saying, okay, what we're going to do is go out and take bank transaction data uh, from all our customers and use that for doing credit underwriting, there was a huge amount of skepticism. People said, well, look, customers will never share that data with you. Why, why would they? Uh, you know, once you have that data, it's really messy and noisy. You'll never be able to extract signal from noise. So I think this sort of this lack of vision combined with this sort of healthy dose of, uh, of, of skepticism. And then I think finally, reason number four, and I think this is the worst of all the reasons, and I wouldn't ascribe this to everyone, but it's certainly in the, in the market, is I think some of the lenders just don't want to know. So they don't want to know what's in the bank transaction data because there would be consequences that they might have to, 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 to act on. So, for example, if you have a customer who's got a great credit score, but they have, uh, you know, they're experiencing you know, a problem gambling, that, you know, it would be irresponsible to lend to that customer. And so if you know about that, you really shouldn't do it. So I think there might be a, a fear from some of the lenders that it would actually reduce their, um, their, their origination volume. The reason I think that's the, the worst possible reason is, one, you know, you, you, shouldn't be, you shouldn't be doing that kind of lending. But secondly, actually, the upside is, from a lender's perspective is far bigger because you're able to now 
properly using understanding customers' finances, you can serve a much wider addressable market. So the swap set is like for every one customer that you would decline because they have a prime credit score, but you find some vulnerabilities in the bank transaction data, there are six other customers that you wouldn't have been able to lend to otherwise if you just use a traditional approach. So, so I think those are really the, the four reasons I'd say why banks haven't, haven't done it so far. I'm very happy to dive into to any of those. Right, okay, so if that's the context, and I think we can take that pretty much as read, given the um, challenge is, is not the concept. I mean, to me, it sounds, yeah, of course, sure. Yeah, yeah get, get the open banking data on my, you know, work out what you can. From my perspective, uh, maybe I'll even get a better price uh, as a result of sharing my data, which is an incentive for me. But let's just take the simple Gdanken, which is I sort of uh, email you over uh, on a spreadsheet or two, because I don't like these open banking buttons. <laughs> technophobia and you've got 10 years of daily transactions from Mike yep what categories of, of, of signal are you looking in there do you end up with a thousand metrics or just one <laughs> how often he goes bust or something in the middle we end up with thousands of metrics that we pull out of it but in reality you know that they don't they don't all have a, an equal weight I think at its core what you're trying to do is say if I'm looking at Mike, what does Mike earn? What does Mike spend? What's left over at the end? What's Mike's core structural affordability? So you're saying, can, you know, does he have the ability uh, to repay uh, to, re to repay debt? And then what you're looking at doing is extracting a whole bunch of signals about willingness to behave, uh, to, to, to repay and, and financial behavior that you can pull from that data as well. So, so you, you can see things like, you know, what is the velocity with which Mike spends, um, uh, spends uh, you know, available discretionary income? How stable are Mike's finances? You gave the example before, of, uh, you know, going into deep into overdraft, you know, once every month or something like that. So you start to pick up those things. You can see patterns like, um, uh, you know, d do you always make your rent payments on time or sometimes do you make them, uh, do you make them a, little, uh, a little bit later? Oh, you know, what is the, the stability of, of, of your income? Is it, a, is it a monthly salary or does it fluctuate quite a bit and how do you manage those fluctuations? So th there's this huge number of, um, of signals that you can pull out. Some of them are very traditional. So we obviously calculate things like debt to income ratios and debt service coverage ratios and, and that kind of thing. But instead of doing that based off statistical averages, we're doing that based on real accurate assessments of affordability. So your average bank is going out there and they use something in the UK Office of National Statistics data, which basically gives you almost like a, not even a postcode average for, for, for expenditure, it's just sort of across 11, 12 regions of the country, what on average do people spend on rent, on groceries, on commuting, et cetera, in each of those areas. And they use that to say, okay, so this is the customer spending profile. I combine that with what they told me on the application form as their income. I work out their affordability. I can calculate debt to income ratios. I can calculate debt service coverage ratios. But those things are obviously, they might be right on average, as we said before, but wrong in every individual case. So we use the power of accuracy and granularity to do much better in, in calculating those kind of metrics. Ah, oh, interesting. Well, going back to my sort of uh, noddy level understanding of anything. So what happens is I send you a spreadsheet and let's say for the sake of argument, you're, you're sending me all the results and see if I can lend to myself. Uh, then I get basically a, a chart with about a thousand lines, which are sort of, you know, monthly rolling averages over the last 10 years of, of, of a number of these metrics that you say. And then, so just on that little good anchor, so I kept, my spreadsheet comes back, page two, there's one chart with a thousand lines on. I go, ah, right, okay, blimey, that's a lot of information. So how does one then consolidate all of these various measurements over time into let's just keep it simple for stupid people like me he's a good credit rating you can lend to him he's a bad credit rating you can't so we'll just do the the, the un-nuanced thing first yeah so, so, so we have a we have a, 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 a kind of what we call a machine underwriter um, so it's an ai trained underwriter that basically goes through all of that data and what it will do is it will come up with a recommendation uh, it'll come up with what we call a probability of default. So how likely is it that Mike will default? And it will also compare that against the credit bureau's assessment of how likely you are to default. So say, okay, your credit score might say you have a 10% likelihood of default, but we think you have a 2% likelihood of default actually understanding your financial situation. What we then do is, so in some cases, we make automated decisions. In some cases, we'll ask underwriters to review those decisions. Uh, and if you take a, you know, it's pretty easy to think about one of the ones we ask an underwriter to review it. The model will go through and say, okay, this is my overall recommendation. 
uh, of the thousands of features that I've looked at, there are six features that are really important in, in Mike's case, uh, and I'll highlight those for you to, to, to take a look at. I will tell you um, what are the, you know, other, if there are any other warning signs or potential policy breaches that have come through. And I will give you a rapid summary of Mike's financial situation. So here's his top line affordability. We think his average income, his core spending, his financial commitments, his discretionary expenditure, and this is what's left over that could be used for debt service. We'll look at the stability of his income. We'll look at a, a kind of financial stability profile that looks at um, you know, how stable uh, and, and repeatable and, and reliable the, the, the kind of the financial performance is. Um, and we'll look at some of the kind of the balance sheet information as well. And so we're able to kind of summarize that up in what is actually quite a simple package to, 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 to go through and navigate. So if we present one of these cases to our, our sort of human underwriters with all of this recommendation and guidance, it takes them about 10 minutes to go through and review and, and, and either confirm a decision or, or overturn it. I see. And um, one of the many omissions uh, in the podcast uh, so far is that I ought to have clarified whether you are a tech fintech, are you selling banks technology, which gives a number, says so might get seven out of 10, or whether you're a, a, a lender yourself, a fin fintech, whether you're, you're using your clever computer inside to, to decide whether to lend Mike money or not? We were actually both. So when we started oh. off, the vision was we wanted to be able to provide this credit technology platform that would be a fundamentally different, you know, new way of doing credit, uh, consumer credit decisioning. And our kind of ideal state of the world was every lender everywhere would use that. That would improve access to, to, to low cost credit. And obviously it would be a profitable business for us sort of providing, you know, being the, 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 the kind of leading provider of this new way of doing underwriting. But we also kind of realized at the very beginning that no one would believe us that it would work unless we could prove it. Coming back to the, the point we made about vision, uh, you know, and, and all the roadblocks that people throw up about saying, yeah, something like this will never work. So we actually started by launching a bound uh, as our own consumer lender. We set up the business in sort of mid 2020. We started, we got regulatory approval to as a consumer lender in the UK and started lending in March 2021. And so we've been lending for, you know, a bit over two, two and a half years so, uh, so, so far. The performance on that has really proved the technology. So we are getting about a 70% reduction in defaults versus the, the, the kind of the market expectation, if you like. So for every 10 defaults that our competitors would see, we would see three like for like, you know, serving the same, the same risk profile. So we've shown that this kind of open banking or bank transaction data led underwriting really makes a massive difference and also expands the, the customer base that you can serve quite dramatically. And then alongside that, we have another proposition that we call Render, which is our software as a service offering, where we basically take that lending technology that we've built and proven off our own lending, and we provide that for all consumer lending asset classes. Uh, and so we really uh, launched that to the market at the beginning of this, uh, this year, and, we, and that's been growing very, very rapidly. Oh, interesting. Well, it's a, a commercial conversation off the topic of how you actually extract uh, signals from this data, but it will be an interesting uh, idea. Let's say, for example, in five years' time, you've got two divisions and two CEOs below you, one of the software division and the other of the lender decision, and those CEOs turn up one day and you all have to have a big sort of powwow about, look, you know, what of you is going and what one of you are you staying? And the lender's <laughs> saying, look... Look, just to raise a trillion dollars and we can knock out Bank of America and all these sort of, you know, HSBCs, all these small fry, we can be the biggest bank in the world. And you see your other guys saying, well, it's just better quality of income selling them um, computers. But anyway, uh, you, you're not at that point of having to make the decision yet. So in terms of going back to assessing credit, and there are two questions that uh, come to mind. Uh, you mentioned you've got a very clever computer that's artificially intelligent, um, as many people do these days. And one of the challenges with that is... It can be really clever, but you haven't got a bloody clue what he's doing. Let's say it's just neural networked itself and it's a black box and it spits out a number. And you say, why is Mike so rubbish? It, you know, a lot of these systems can't explain themselves very well. Unlike a human underwriter, even if it's cleverer, it's not going to explain itself. Um, that's the first question. Then secondly, we're, we're having dealt with that, can we go back on to the discontinuities? I've never done uh, lending to individuals or, or, or really looked at, at that. But again, the discontinuities are quite a big thing. So... Mike, for example, could have been a partner at McKinsey's and, and then one day he lost the plot and decided to chuck that in <laughs> and suddenly has zero, zero income and, and, and forecasting and modelling that. It doesn't matter how clever your computer is. That's quite a tricky thing, thing to model. But anyway, first things first, you've got a clever computer and it gives you the right answer for the sake of argument, but you go, hang on, why is Mike rubbish? 
how does it explain itself? Do you want me to talk you through like how we actually take that data and all the steps we go through to get to the conclusion? Or do you want me to focus on... I was more focusing on the, the point that you mentioned, which is that I said you've got this on page two of my spreadsheet. You've got a thousand lines going up and down. Yep. And how the hell do you look at these thousand lines and, uh, and assess it? And you say, well, you've got a clever computer that uses artificial intelligences. And it, it does it. And, it, you know, it, it comes out with the answer. You go, oh, thank you. Thank you, oh, clever computer. And then you say there's discrepancy. Yeah. Well, you know, the model is never 100% correct. And we've dived into AI, obviously, a number of times on the podcast. And depending on what type of technique or technology within the so-called domain of, of AI you've got, it can be more or less transparent why it's, quotes saying what it's saying. Yeah. So, so I think one of the things that really has made us, has allowed us to build a model that performs incredibly well is we have, it, we have it as a very explainable model and we have reinforcement learning from human feedback built into the training of that, uh, of that model. So when we started, we actually started with 100% of all of our cases uh, having a model recommended decision, but going through manual underwriting. And so what we were basically looking at is saying, what is the model predicted here? Why has it done it? So we have our kind of explainability matrix. So it goes through and says, okay, these are the features that really contribute and we think are important in, in let's say, Mike's, uh, Mike's case. And we'd have the underwriters look at all of the granular breakdown information and say whether they agreed with that or not. And where they disagreed, they would say, okay, well, we disagree because you've, you've missed out the following features. Uh, you, you've, you've missed out the fact that, um, uh, you know, actually in, in this case, we can see that Mike's current account balance is almost always zero the whole month. You know, he's only, it's only positive in, you know, for the day he gets paid and the day after. And therefore, that's, that's an important feature that you need to build into the model. So our data scientists who sit right next to our underwriters would go away and add that as a feature to the model and go through and, and, re, and retrain it. And we've run this as a continuous iteration since we started lending. We, we still put you know, a good proportion of all of our, our kind of proposed accept cases through that kind of manual review as well to continue that sort of retraining. And so if you like, the model has a combination of machine harvested features where it's sort of just going through and doing almost brute force selection of features uh, and then expert curated features where we've had underwriters go through and say, actually, no, these things are really important in, in consumer credit. And then you combine those two things and you train it on a series of, uh, of, of kind of credit outcomes. And so those outcomes can be this is what the underwriter thinks is a good case. Those outcomes can be this is what we actually observed in terms of missed payments from, uh, from, from customers in the, in the past. And that continuous improvement cycle is one of the things that has really improved the quality of the, of the decision making. It's also why it's really important to us that it's not a black box model that just says, here's the answer, but I can't tell you why. It's here's the answer, but let's decompose that into all of the drivers of how I came to that answer. Oh, excellent. Well, look, we'll come back to discontinuity in, in a second, but listening, you, listening to you there, again, summing it up uh, in my chat GPT, uh, everything as if for a five-year-old. So the, the, the best answer is to get your computers um, and your people uh, working together and to both learn from the other. And I'm reminded I was reading last night, not my average reading, but it's very recommended to any uh, tech folk out there, a book called Sunburst and Luminary, an Apollo memoir by Don Isles. And Don Isles was some young thruster back in the day who programmed in near assembly code, really, the landing software for um, the Apollo uh, space missions. You know, he, he wrote the whole code um, and this kind of thing. And right back in the beginning, people would know there was this, um, uh, uh, the Right Stuff book um, talks all about this. There was this bifurcation of ideas that, that on one hand, he wanted spam in a can. And the technologists wanted just, you know, look, we flew a monkey, so just, just tell a human being not to touch anything. You know, just you know, spam in a can, that was, that was called. Uh, and the other one was the stroppy jocks, which is you've got um, the other way, which is that, you know, a, a human can always outperform um, the machine. Um, but then eventually what uh, ends up happening is that they find the two things work together. It generally went and, like, you will get the computers to do the right thing. But as notoriously known, Apollo 11 almost crashed on the moon, and it was seconds away. They had seconds of, uh, of fuel left. And I was reading a chapter about this, and it was really sort of fascinating in terms of afterwards, everybody blaming everybody else for this, of course. Um, but it was, it was really vital that sort of uh, Neil Armstrong actually took over for the computer and flew it. And the, the bug is uh, generally described, and I've seen it previously, described as one switch was in the wrong setting. Uh, but that's actually a misunderstanding, i.e. they're blaming the astronauts. Though if the switch was in the right setting, it would have been okay. 
but really it was incredibly complex interrelation between hardware and software and operational procedures and changes at last minutes and, uh, and all this kind of thing. Anyway, long story short, uh, uh, that was just a digression, which is that even back in the 60s, which is quite a while ago now, this whole sort of technology versus human being thing turned out to be the right answer. And Apollo 13 was another a notable example of where if you can somehow and I'm, I'm, I'm simplifying it, but of course doing this well is, is, is an art in itself. Get the computers and, and, and people to learn from each other. It's better. Sunburst and luminary. Anyway, it's on, it's on Apollo. Okay, so I get that. Um, and then, look, so in terms of consumer lending, it's, it's the discontinuity thing. It's the discontinuity of phenomena. Covid comes along, or, or 2008 comes along, or the market crash comes along, or interest rate spike comes along, or one day Mike, who's been earning a million bucks a week as a partner at sort of uh, McKinsey loses the plot and goes off and earns, earns nothing. So, uh, and this is not necessarily a thing about your approach in particular. It's a generic thing to do with uh, consumer lending. And I mentioned the stress testing and all these things in extreme cases in, in more B2B things. And, uh, and that's a little bit different. But with individuals, their lives, their individual lives are much more discontinuous than, say, I don't know, the life of a Citigroup or an IBM who tend, or a McKinsey who tend not to have sudden changes or, or sprain their ankle or end up in hospital or ill or, you know, this kind of thing. So uh, maybe it's not a specific question to your methodology, but how does this whole discontinuity thing go through your mind when you wake up four o'clock in the morning worrying about it? So I think we're much, we're able to deal with that discontinuity much better than a traditional lender uh, because we have real-time information and we have accurate granular information that points to fundamental risk drivers uh, as opposed to high-level correlations that you have from, uh, from traditional approaches. So let's take each of those in turn. If you look at sort of the real-time information, uh, take me, uh, you know, so I used to be a partner in McKinsey, and then I stopped earning any money from McKinsey and, uh, and started a, a startup. If I applied to a bound uh, for, for a loan, what you would see is the, the McKinsey pay coming in and then stopping and, and then nothing. You wouldn't see that on a, in a traditional credit score. On a traditional credit score, you would just see um, the credit facilities I'd had in the past, my mortgage, my, my, my credit card, etc. And so you wouldn't see any difference. The only way you would know how much I earned is what I said on my application form when I, when I, when I kind of disclosed that. And so likely a traditional lender would just sort of wave that through, whereas we would say, oh, hold on a second, it looks like there's been a big you know, structural change in your, in your finances. Um, you know, we, we're at very least going to put that into a manual referral queue for someone to, to take a look at. Um, and so we, we, we kind of significantly outperform because of that real-time information. So uh, job losses, payment shocks, significant increases in recent borrowing and so on, all of that you can see from the bank transaction data far before it would start to percolate through into a, into a credit report or a traditional kind of credit file, uh, credit file set of information. The other thing then is also fu fundamental risk drivers. So in a traditional approach, what you're doing is, is trying to build a correlation between, well, if, if Gerald's had a mortgage for five years, it's unlikely that he's going to default now. Uh, and obviously that kind of thing works well in a steady state, but gets fundamentally you know, uh, shifted in a, in a dislocation. So at the moment, interest rates have gone from zero to, to you know, 5.25 percent. Then you know, that's a dislocation. And actually that, that kind of historic prediction might not be that accurate in the future. Whereas what we're doing, we're looking at someone's granular financial situation, you know, what they earn, what they spend, what's left at the end, all the breakdowns of that financial behavior. That gives you a much better kind of basis to go through and understand. Actually, I think, you know, I, I can understand if this person is likely to have payment difficulties or not. And you might think as a borrower that, well, that sounds a little bit negative because, uh, you know, you're finding more reasons that you can, you can, uh, you can decline lending. But actually, what you're doing is you're finding more reasons that you can accept people. And actually, that's far bigger than the, the more reasons that you can, you can decline lending. Because most lenders in a dislocated, a dislocated environment say, well, there's a lot of uncertainty. I know my models aren't, in truth, actually really good. So I'm just going to really rein in uh, lending appetite. Whereas what we can do is go through, look through all of that and say, actually, despite all this uncertainty, despite this dislocation, I know that Mike's situation is actually quite stable. And it, you know, we're very happy to, to, to serve Mike as a customer. So it comes back to you can make fairer and better decisions if you've got more granularity in the information. Yes, indeed. And, you know, I should fess up, of course, to the bowling a short pitch ball there, because some things like somebody changes career after 20 years it is unforecastable, or, you know, <laughs> perhaps even for his wife. <laughs> to a certain extent, if the wife can't do it, a computer definitely, definitely can't. And in practice, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a long conversation. But, you know, what I found by just monitoring P&L streams 
uh, from whatever it was, 200 businesses in, in Kleinwatz back in the day, and then using that uh, approach uh, for uh, other, other merchant banks um, who bought mine softwares, is that, yes, there are these kind of things where you suddenly change job, that's a digital, uh, and let's say for the sake of argument, unpredictable. But that isn't the general case. The general case is much more like a seismograph, which is like the volcanoes in Iceland. You know, if you've got a seismograph, it starts wibbly-wobbling before it blows its top. So there are lots of pre-shock leading indicators in the data. And, you know, I think the key thing you said is real-time data. Look, if you're looking at real-time data and Mike's bank, bank balance and, you know, spending every day, you can, you can be the first to see that he's taken up gambling uh, or something like that. So, uh, yes, yeah, so my, my, my question was a, a slightly unfair one in taking the extreme case. And I just wanted to mention for the listener's benefit that this sort of pre-shock thing, that you often see signals before a discontinuity. Right, OK, so look, uh, we could keep talking about this for way more uh, than we have, but I hope we've given listeners a, a real flavour for this area and the richness and depth um, that is there. And uh, I certainly, if I was a listener uh, listening to this and I was in consumer uh, lending in my bank, uh, I'd be thinking about checking out uh, a bound before they decide that actually they're going to raise a trillion dollars and wipe out all banks in the world and benefit um, in the meantime. And also for a consumer, I might check you out and see what uh, you're going to lend to Mike at. Uh, probably about 15% per annum. OK, so before we wrap up the show, I'd like to thank all the listeners out there and my brand partners of the podcast. Smart is transforming pensions and retirement worldwide. Their leading-edge retirement tech platform propelled them to success in the UK. Now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like Zurich and JP Morgan. Find out more at www.smart.co. The enlistedboard.com, your guide to entrepreneurial governance and how you can start making your board an engine of growth today. So, Gerald, that's been a fascinating dive into this topic. I'm still reeling from the idea of getting a, a spreadsheet back with a chart with thousands of lines on, but at least you've told me that the next page... Uh, just comes out with a number, which I can understand one number um, on a good day. So you've been very conscientious and sticking to the main course and haven't told us much about Abound. How many countries are you in at the moment? Roughly how many staffs? Where, where are you lending? Where are you selling your softwares? What are the plans for the future? And what do you need to be even bigger and better tomorrow than you are today? At our heart, we're a consumer credit technology company. What we're working on doing is building the future of consumer underwriting. And we think if you look out five years everyone is going to have to be doing this. So, you know, using bank transaction data for doing decisioning for 100% of their customers. Why do I think that? I think, well, because it just works. You can see that from the performance of our lending. We're getting a 70% reduction in defaults versus the rest of the, uh, the, rest of the market. And we can serve a much wider addressable market than your traditional lender very, uh, very, very safely. And secondly, I think regulation will push it very quickly in this direction as well, because you can't say that you're doing uh, responsible lending where you really care about a customer's affordability, you really care about screening for vulnerabilities, if you're not looking at that bank transaction data to properly, uh, to properly understand them, especially when it is so actually readily available now with, with open banking, PSD2 and, and, and so on. So I guess going forward, like what is it that we're looking for? At the moment, we are lending in the UK. So under the Abound brand, uh, we're a consumer lender in the UK. Uh, and we're looking to continue scaling, scaling that up rapidly. You mentioned we, we'd raised so far about 570 million in funding. So we're very well funded to continue scaling that, uh, that, that lending business. We're also a credit technology provider through our, our, our brand Render. And we're really looking to be able to take this technology now that we've proven it and roll it out you know, across, uh, across Europe to, uh, to, to banks and, 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 and non-bank lenders and sort of change the way people do consumer, consumer credit. We think that will significantly expand access to, to, to low-cost credit as you transition to this new, new approach. And so I think the things I'd be interested in from listeners would be, like number one, if you're interested in working for, for a fast-growing uh, company that's reshaping the way consumer credit works, please reach out. We're, we're relatively small at the moment. We're a company of about 55 people, uh, but we're growing, very, uh, we're growing very rapidly. So very keen to, to, to hear from people who want to be part of that journey. Uh, and then secondly, from a, from a kind of client perspective, if you're, you know, if you, if, if you could see a, a use for, for render and our credit technology in your business to use open banking uh, or bank transaction data more effectively in, in uh, credit decision making, love to have a conversation, obviously, about that as well. Excellent. Well, as I started by saying, um, it's a very rare area that isn't done before. I had to stifle a groan when you said the regulators will make banks do it. There was this thing back in the day when I, when I started in the city, which was called sort of uh, uh, commercial decisions. And if you made stupid ones, you didn't do very well and the, the shareholders were unhappy. But these days in the Soviet Union and the Western Europe, the regulator tells everybody uh, what to do. And I think, you know, the simplest argument of all is, look, you guys have trialled it. You know what you're doing. 
And uh, if I was, I don't know, CEO of a bank, I'd call the CRO in and say, why aren't you looking at the bloody open banking data? I mean, <laughs> everybody knows in the world of data, you can't have too much data. You can't have too many, in my sense, dials on an aircraft. So uh, it seems an absolute no-brainer to me. So definitely something that uh, listeners who are after a, a role in this area should check out, as well as banks who need uh, software and people who need uh, lending. So thank you very much for that, Gerald. It's been a very fascinating one. And as I say, uh, with no uh, idle flattery, uh, it is a very rare guest who's doing something that... Uh, I hear of that I haven't heard of um, before once or twice and, and having done this kind of stuff about looking for data for signals in real time PL data from well, hundreds of departments across a, an organization I know that it's an invaluable source of uh, information and uh, I wish you and Bound and Render uh, every success in the future. Thank you very much Mark it's been great to speak I really appreciate the time. Thanks for listening. If you're in need of a non-executive or advisory director with deep expertise, experience and contacts in the worlds of both traditional FS and fintech or unique insight into how to make your board an engine of growth today, contact me at mike at mikeballiman.com. If you just need one-off advice in these areas via clarity.fm slash mikeballiman. We could sit in a bender all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride Watching a happy moon ride Watch the firelight dance with me, 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 watch the firelight dance with me,